I'm Carl Helliker, and welcome to Book Chat. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Thomas Segru from the University of Pennsylvania, and we're going to talk about two issues. One is his uh, book, The Origins of the Urban Crisis, which in 1998 won the Bancroft Prize, which is the most prestigious award that a book uh, for history uh, given pretty much prima primarily by historians can receive. So congratulations on that great honor. Thank you. Uh, it may seem like a while ago, but uh, I was delighted to hear when we were talking that you uh, said you have a forthcoming book on the uh, civil rights movement in the North to be published by Random House. That's right. Do you have a title for that yet? Uh, yes, it's called Sweet Land of Liberty, The Unfinished Struggle uh, for Racial Equality in the North. Now that sounds fascinating. Yeah. Uh, as we, as we'll probably learn not all the problems were in the South. Mm -hmm. uh, Absolutely. Well, well, Tom, tell us, tell us a little about yourself, uh, where you're teaching, your research interests, and uh, where are you living now? Yeah, well, I've been on the faculty of the University of Pennsylvania for almost 13 years now, uh, and uh, have been a, a proud resident of Philadelphia for those 13 years. Um, I'm originally from the Midwest. I grew up in Detroit, and uh, after traveling to uh, other East Coast cities, spending some time in Boston, New York, Washington, and a couple of years in England, I uh, made my way to Philadelphia. Right, and, and your book is, is fascinating, and it does, to me, it struck me as having some similar parallels to uh, Stephen Hahn's book. Mm -hmm. uh, he was Stephen here, here a little while ago because it, it focuses a lot not just on the higher people but the ordinary people and the social aspects of uh, history, if you will. So uh, you do mention in the book, you say all northern cities had conflicts over race and housing. So why did you choose to focus on Detroit? Yeah, well part of my focus on Detroit was uh, being a native. Uh, I knew my way around. I knew where the good sources were. I knew who to talk to. Uh, um, you know, as the old saying goes, I knew where the bodies were buried. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, part of it was also that um, I felt that I could explore issues that were common to a whole range of cities in what we call the Rust Belt. Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Newark, uh, and so forth. So um, Detroit, in, in many respects, shares a lot in common with these other cities, particularly in the intense conflict uh, around, around race and urban change that happened after the Second World War. Fine. Uh, during World War II, uh, Detroit was called the arsenal of democracy. Mm -hmm. What did this mean and what was it, its implications for African Americans? Yeah, well Detroit was um, the pinnacle of American industrial power, of capitalism, American capitalism in lots of ways. It was the home of the auto industry and in the Second World War it was called the arsenal of democracy because it was one of the major centers of military production. Um, tanks, jeeps, uh, and uh, airplanes, and so forth. And so, um, uh, the, you know, the old saying went that Detroit was the, you know, was the arsenal of, de was the arsenal of democracy. It was, a, it was the place where um, uh, without, without its uh, workers and its factories, uh, America would have had a, a more uphill battle in the Second World War. Because Detroit was such a major manufacturing center, it was a magnet for folks coming from all over the world, but increasingly in the World War II, from blacks coming from the South who were looking for economic opportunity for jobs. And remember, the South in the 1940s was a place where most blacks were rural, there were second-class citizens, and the opportunity of getting a well-paying factory job, uh, um, working in the auto or defense industry was a, a lure to a lot of people coming north. Right. We uh, tend to have some very uh, common and perhaps pernicious stereotypes about causes of poverty. Right. You refute a lot of these in your books. Can you talk about some of the uh, traditional ones and why they are incorrect? Yeah, well, the conventional wisdom, which is, um, became less and less convincing the more I did research on this project, what, is that you know, the problems of American cities um, have their roots in the 1960s with 
the social policies of the war on poverty or with the urban riots of the late 1960s or the rise of black power politics. Um, and uh, the more I started digging around, the more I realized that it was in the supposedly you know, affluent and prosperous post-Second World War II years that we see a lot of major problems beginning to play out. One big factor was the um, African Americans are migrating north at a time when jobs are migrating out to suburbs and increasingly to rural areas and increasingly to um, underdeveloped parts of the country, like ironically the South. Um, it's part of a process that we see going on right up to the present day where companies are moving to low-wage places overseas. So that change is happening and it begins right after World War II. At the same time, there's persistent racial discrimination in a lot of industries. It's, if you're a black person, it's hard to find a job, a well-paying job, a stable job, and that um, exacerbates the problem of poverty. And then there's intense conflict over housing and racial segregation in housing. And that's something you see still shaping metropolitan areas where there are high degrees of separation by race, racial segregation, um, in terms of black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods. And that's a pattern that becomes deeply entrenched in Detroit and lots of other cities like it after the Second World War. Very good. As a matter of fact, why don't we talk about that for a minute? You talk about what you call residential segregation. Mm -hmm. uh, you say it's the most, this is a quote, the most viable and intractable intractable manifestation of racial inequality. Yeah. inequality. Uh, what exactly is this uh, residential segregation and how, yeah. do, how does it apply? Well, it's a really important part of the story of what happens to cities in the North. Um, and you know, here in metropolitan Philadelphia, it's a, it's, a, it's a very familiar story in lots of ways, which is um, we have a rhetoric in the United States because because of the civil rights movement of um, accepting people regardless of their race or ethnicity or background. Um, we talk the talk, uh, but over the course of the period from the 1940s to the present, very few Americans, especially white Americans, walk the walk. That is, mm -hmm. there aren't many places where African Americans and whites live in close proximity to each other, despite the rhetoric of racial equality and equal opportunity for all. And so racial segregation, or the, the, the se separating out of black populations and white populations, um, is a deeply entrenched pattern. It's been very hard to change, despite a dramatic positive shift in racial attitudes um, in the last half century. But I, I do remember reading in another book, and I, I think it said that uh, Richard Daly was an expert in that. In fact, he created the uh, University of Illinois at Chicago strictly as a, a racial barrier yeah. between the blacks and whites. Yep, and um, northern cities are full of such barriers, really. Um, yeah. Um, highway, highways, expressways were often cut right through um, or in between um, African-American and white neighborhoods. Um, public housing projects were often constructed on the borders uh, between neighborhoods as a way of, or deeply within black neighborhoods as a way of keeping people cordoned mm -hmm. off and separated. Um, very important part, um, part of the story of racial segregation. And what is racial ideology and how did it <coughs> contribute to stereotypes of blacks during this period? Yeah, well, um, racial ideology, I mean, this is in some ways the, how we perceive racial difference, right? Um, and um, Americans, American history is a, a long and not very glorious past of, of folks believing that um, blacks are inferior. Uh, that um, by the Second World War, that ideology came under challenge, largely because of fascism, right? Because Germany, fascist Germany, relied on the oppression of a population because of who they were, their racial or ethnic background. So this starts to come under challenge, and it has a big impact in the United States. Um, but 
ideology and practice or what you say and what you believe, what you profess and how you live are two separate things. And even though the ideology, that is how we think about race, changed for the better after World War II, um, the practices were much, much more gradual and changing for the better. Tom, let's pick a, a little up uh, on the politics. Uh, you say local and national politics were the most important variables in shaping race as a concept. Can you uh, elaborate on that? Yeah, um, this is a really important part of the story. Um, a conventional wisdom, which I challenge quite a bit, um, sees racial politics as really bursting on the scene in the 1960s and beyond. Um, but if you look at uh, federal government policy and state and local um, public policy in the 1930s and 1940s and 1950s, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it exaggerates or exacerbates racial inequality rather than undermining it or challenging it in a lot of places. So to take one really good example, very concrete example, uh, the federal government dramatically expands home ownership because of its mortgage underwriting policies. Uh, FHA, the Federal Housing Administration, the Veterans Administration and the GI Bill makes it possible for um, tens of millions, hundreds of millions over the time of Americans to own their own homes um, who wouldn't have been able to afford it before. But those policies were drawn up in such a way to make it difficult or impossible to get uh, underwriting or um, uh, mortgage guarantees if you lived in a minority neighborhood or if you lived in a racially diverse neighborhood. So it gave, in other words, federal policy gave financial incentive uh, to uh, the massive process of suburbanization after, second, after the Second World War, but also gave financial incentive for that process of suburbanization to disproportionately benefit whites and not, and not blacks. So race, in other words, or racial inequality was part and parcel of, of uh, government policy from the New Deal on, on forward. So it was actually reinforcing segregation. Exactly. Right. Uh, how would you describe then black-white re relations in, G in Detroit following the war and yeah. through the fifties? Uh, well, there were there were lots of moments of tension as well as moments of cooperation. Um, you know, Detroit and other big cities often had pretty powerful interracial organizations. Um, sometimes trade unions, sometimes civil rights groups, sometimes churches um, that tried to foster interconnections. But it was also a period of intense violence, what black and white. Uh, violence, often violence by whites directed towards blacks. Mm -hmm. In Detroit, in 1942, for example, when a, um, uh, uh, an affordable housing development for war workers called the Sojourner Tooth Homes was being built near a white neighborhood, mm -hmm. uh, uh, hundreds of whites gathered, protested, attacked black passersby, and had a, a basically a mini race riot. Um, between the mid-1940s and the mid-1960s in Detroit, I found more than 200 incidents of attacks on the first or second black family to move into a formerly all-white neighborhood. In almost every case, the windows were broken because you could throw a rock and mm -hmm. under the cover of darkness and not be a... Uh, but protests, pickets, um, you know, people pouring you know, gasoline on lawns, arson, um, uh, all sorts of uh, um, really pretty horrific incidents that were challenges to um, blacks' right to live where they chose. And those incidents play out everywhere in the North. I've, you know, I've in my newer project, I found examples in Philadelphia, in Chicago, and every major northern city there were conflicts on the borders between black and white neighborhoods. Again, reinforcing racial separation or segregation. Just maybe a little bit off the, the topic here, but from your current research, how would you characterize uh, um, northern treatment of blacks as compared to the traditional southern treatment of blacks during the civil rights movement? 
there are differences and similarities between the North and the South. Um, one of the great differences um, is that most segregation and racial separation in the North isn't written into law, right? So there aren't laws in the North that say blacks have to use separate bathrooms from whites, have to sit in separate sections of theaters. But uh, on the other hand, um, in everyday life, there are all sorts of inequalities um, in the North. It's not until the 1950s, for example, in most northern cities uh, that hotels, restaurants, uh, and in many places movie theaters uh, would admit um, African-American customers or would let them, you know, would do anything but put them, cordon them off in one small section of a, of a restaurant or one small section of a theater. So the law in the North didn't require that, but right. the custom did. Um, and so there are many more similarities between North right. and South than the conventional wisdom would lead us to believe. Right, right. Didn't Martin Luther King, in fact, say that if he wanted to teach the people of Alabama to hate, he would send them to Chicago? That's right. So, yep, yeah. uh, absolutely. And, and many Southern activists were shocked when they came North and found that uh, Northern audiences, Northern uh, white crowds were just as hostile or more hostile. Mm -hmm. than, you know, King himself was hit by a brick when right. he went to Chicago. Uh, um, uh, to protest housing segregation there in 1966. So um, the, the North was not nearly as open-minded as, as the conventional wisdom right. would lead us to believe. Right. And of course, with Detroit, we always associate uh, the automobile industry. Uh, was the automobile industry, was it a, a haven? Did it offer a lot of opportunities for black employment? Yes. I mean, the auto industry was one of the more racially diverse and racially integrated industries in the country. But um, African-Americans tended to get the most insecure and lowest paying jobs. Um, so, and they're the jobs that were most likely to disappear when the companies relocated plants or introduced new forms of technology um, that replaced workers with machines. And so, um, so they benefited from the auto industry a lot. It created really, you could say, a black middle class in cities like Detroit. But um, their hold on that middle class status was very precarious. It was hard, you know, it was, it was hard to hang on to to jobs as they were disappearing. What about some of the other industries? I guess some like the building trades weren't is a... The building trades were nearly impossible. If you went to a construction site in 1950 or 1960 or even 1970, uh, you'd see all white faces um, in any major city in the north. Right. Um, how about the NAACP? I know it was very active in Detroit. Was it, did it have a degree of success in protecting blacks? And, uh... It did. Uh, the NAACP uh, boomed in the North during World War II and right after World War II. And it fought to desegregate schools, to um, challenge the uh, discrimination against blacks in the workplace. It met with obstacles, too, serious obstacles, uh, because the, you know, it was a, a small organization facing a huge problem. Um, and they didn't always have the resources or the, um, or, or the ability to take on some of these really large-scale problems. But they, they made some very valiant efforts. How about Detroit today? I mean, obviously its problems aren't solved, but do you think it's improved or is it not because the economy compared to, you know, from the beginning years of study is compared to the present? Uh, Detroit is a grim place today. Uh, it's one of the most racially polarized cities in the country. It's lost more than a million people. Uh, you know, folks around Philadelphia think that Philadelphia has been, you know, devastated by population loss and, and uh, industrial decline. but. It's booming by comparison to Detroit. Um, in a way, Detroit is, is the extreme case, but the patterns that play out in Detroit, uh, depopulation, disinvestment, racial conflict, are patterns common to every major northern city. Uh, every place loses population between 1950 and 1990. Every big city in the north loses population between 1950 and 1990. A few have a little bit of a population uptick and then 
1990s because of immigration. Tom, you've been involved in very what I find very intriguing uh, process in, involved with two uh, other renowned historians, Stanley Cutler, I believe, is, I don't know if he's retired, he was at the University of Wisconsin, right. and uh, Robert Dalek, the author of uh, a, a fine book on Kennedy and a uh, two-volume biography on Lyndon Johnson. Can you tell us a little bit about this project? Yeah, well, um, uh, Professors Cutler and Dalek and I were um, brought in by the History Channel to investigate uh, claims made by a documentary that they ran last fall. Uh, the documentary uh, called The Guilty Men uh, made the assertion that uh, Lyndon Johnson had been behind the assassination of JFK, uh, uh, that Johnson, um, uh, in collaboration with Texas oil interests, in collaboration with uh, various other unsavory criminal figures, uh, set up, uh, orchestrated, and, uh, and then paid off people for the assassination of JFK. Um, the History Channel took a lot of criticism for running this documentary. If you want to call it a documentary, um, well, as we investigated, we uh, it became clear that this was this wasn't what we would consider to be good historical uh, 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 filmmaking, to say the least. But um, uh, the Johnson family, um, uh, Presidents Ford and Carter, um, a number of key. Uh, Johnson and Kennedy administration officials, the Johnson Library, all stepped in and said um, this was an irresponsible documentary to run, to besmirch the reputation of, of Lyndon Johnson and the Johnson administration by making these um, assertions. So the History Channel commissioned the three of us to investigate uh, uh, the documentary and then to, um, we were on for an hour on prime time talking about our findings uh, on the History Channel and it was a very interesting process. Uh, Professor Dalek, uh, as, you, as you pointed out, is author of leading biographies on Kennedy and Johnson. Professor Cutler um, is a major political and legal historian who's written about uh, um, Richard Nixon, among others. And, uh, and I work on, among other things, on the political history of America in the 1960s. So I was their general guy uh, mm -hmm. in terms of trying to situate this documentary and conspiracy theories in the bigger history of America in the 1960s. And, and what conclusions did you arrive at? We arrived at the conclusion that there was zero evidence, no evidence at all, that uh, um, uh, could support the claim that Johnson had been involved in the assassination of, of Kennedy. It was, a, it was a completely dubious, absolutely insupportable, irresponsible argument. Um, and we, we made our case, all of us agreed, after we reviewed the documentary and a lot of other material, um, uh, we, we agreed that this had been um, really a problematic uh, decision on the part of the channel to air it. And the History Channel took responsibility and said, we made a mistake. Uh, uh, this, was, this was not something that we um, uh, would like to do again. And the History Channel's got a very good record mm -hmm. of, of doing you know, uh, well-researched uh, uh, and mm -hmm. historically accurate documentaries. And so you know, this was an anomaly for the, for the channel, but they wanted to get out there, clear the air, and make it. And, uh, and, and they made the decision not to air the documentary again or to sell it, uh, you know, the tapes on their, on their, uh, through their commercial venture. Uh, it sounds like history according to Oliver Stone, actually. Well, Oliver Stone's theories in some ways are, you know, uh, uh, equally uh, wrong-headed, but, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, you know, in this case, uh, you know, this, is, this was given, this is like Oliver Stone being given, you know, the credibility of a, you know, of a, of right. a, of a network that's trusted for its, its um, 
you know, uh, accurate mm -hmm. reporting of history. And and what what would have Johnson have gained just playing the devil's advocate? What would he possibly have gained by doing this other than the presidency? <laughs> well, that, yeah, that, that was certainly one of the arguments. Um, another argument that this documentary made was that. Uh, um, Johnson had ties to oil interests, and um, and he would financially benefit from uh, from uh, being their representative in the White House. Now, that's a crazy assertion, in part because the oil interests didn't need someone in the White House. Their, their main work is with Congress, and uh, you have lobbyists, well-paid lobbyists, right. uh, uh, and and in state government to do that as well. Not as exciting to talk about oil money, you know, putting its uh, putting its resources into hiring lobbyists. Much more. You know, enticing to imagine them, you know, assassinating a president to achieve their nefarious goals. But again, not a, not any serious evidence. Right, uh, because I, I know, like, uh, actually, Johnson did do a lot of work that benefited the oil industries when he was a congressman and a senator uh, mm -hmm. with uh, Brown and Root, which is now part of Halliburton, right. which our current vice president uh, has a vested interest in. In uh, right. Um, so what what specifically? How did you go about refuting it? Because to me, the saying that Lyndon Johnson was involved in Kennedy's assassination is like saying, "You proved to me the sky is not blue." Right. You know. Well, that, that, that's a, that's the thing about conspiracy theories generally is that um, they rest on assertions that um, can never be definitively proven or disproven uh, uh, on circumstantial evidence, on rumor, on uh, on the you know wild imaginations of folks who cook them up. Um, uh, and, you know, the, the, the bottom line is we're probably never going to know for certain uh, if there was anyone else behind the Kennedy assassination other than Lee Harvey Oswald. Right. Um, the best evidence still points to the fact that Lee Harvey Oswald was the, was, was the sole uh, assassin. But one of the bigger points about the Kennedy assassination and why these theories about who did it continue to persist is in some ways, to, 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 to blame the assassination of the most powerful man in the world and the charismatic president on one crazy, you know, mm -hmm. um, loser, which is what Lee Harvey Aldwells was, is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's a, it's, people want something more satisfying than that. Right. It's not a very, right. it's not very satisfying, although it might be, uh, all uh, the best evidence still points to that being uh, mm -hmm. uh, the truth. And, and in some ways, the Kennedy family themselves contributed to the in inflaming of conspiracy theories by, by not releasing records right. on the assassination and making it look like they've had something to hide. That's right, yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, secrecy uh, is is fertile soil for conspiracy theories because you can imagine what's not there. And if you don't, you know, you don't have every single document that might be possibly made available for, you know, they would argue national security reasons, then you can imagine what might be there. And, uh, you know, the imagination is clever and interesting sometimes, but again, it doesn't have any relationship to the pretty extensive record that already exists. Um, so. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. So um, you said you had already been on TV. You're uh, on History Channel? Yeah, a lot so, of people watched it. Uh, well, I, 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 I guess I just gave away the fact that I, I didn't realize you were on. I apologize for that. Yeah, it's, um, it was, uh, it's, uh, being on primetime on the History Channel meant that you know, a lot of my relatives, a lot of old friends from high mm -hmm. school that I hadn't talked to in years all uh, you know, um, saw my mug on, uh, on, on primetime TV, which was interesting. Um, but more than that, I think the History Channel put it on primetime. Um, because of the high visibility mm -hmm. of the documentary and their belief that it was really important to have this impartial group of historians um, investigate and, you know, they didn't know how it was going to come out. Um, 
uh, I'm sure they had some hypotheses, but when they brought three respected historians uh, in, mm -hmm. they, you know, in some ways it was it was a it was a courageous thing for them to do. They could have just, you know, ignored the criticisms and the complaints because dead people can't make libel suits. You know, right. Lyndon Johnson can't can't you know rise from uh, rise from the dead and 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 uh, sue the filmmakers for defamation of his character for for spreading these uh, right. these rumors and so on. Dr. Tom Segru, thank you for joining us today on Book Chat to discuss your excellent book, The Origins of the Urban Crisis, to update us on the Kennedy assassination and Lyndon Johnson's role or non-role in it, and of course to talk about your forthcoming book on the civil rights movement in the North, which will be published by Random House, one of the nation's premier publishing companies. So, so thank you again. And I'm Carl Hallecker, and this is Book Chat.